Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, and welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas. Last time, through the lens of the thinking of Michel Foucault, we examined Bernard Cohn's ideas on the English in India in the 18th century and their attempt to, quote-unquote, clarify the Indian system of languages, a system that seemed to them, seemed to the English, to be confusing, convoluted, and very much out of date. In classical Foucaultian fashion, we saw that even if the British did attempt to simply clarify the real meaning, the real intent and workings of the many languages used in India, what actually occurred through that process was an expression of English power, a substantive change in the way those languages worked, what they meant to the people using them, and, and a sort of following ripple effect that well, essentially created a change in everything about the mind and society that language touches, which, if you're a long-time listener to this show, you, you know how, what we think around here about the importance of, uh, of language and its influence on our mind and the way we think. But I, certainly I think pretty much anyone can agree that if I made a slight change to every aspect of you, every aspect of your life, every aspect of, of the society around you, just a, a tiny, tiny little change, but that change touched every aspect of your life, well, I think by the end of that process, you'd be a very different person living in a very different world, right? In any event, today we're going to continue with Cohn as he looks first at Indian law, and then we're going to get into, I think what I've mentioned a couple of times, we're going to talk about some of his more, uh, I certainly think of them as fascinating and exciting claims about how imperialism not only remade the countries over which it ruled, but sort of caused an echo effect back uh, and and had an influence on the people who were doing the ruling, influenced the home countries themselves. We are going to talk about that. These are the claims that I think I've referenced uh, a bit that I don't feel Cohn does as good a job in proving them as he does a number of these other pieces, but we'll indicate that and will certainly indicate any exceptions we think we we find to his thinking. But Cohn does make a number of very significant contentions about how imperialism changed basically everything for everyone in ways that we seldom ever hear talked about, and which presumably we only truly vaguely understand. But without uh, without further ado, let's get right back into Cohn and his thinking on, in this case, law and imperialism in India. Now, the same dynamic that we saw working itself through, uh, through the English and, and their influence on Indian languages, we're going to see that fundamentally same structure and operation in, when they start looking at law itself and thus the structure of government. In fact, it, it's, and I should say, it's almost exactly the same dynamic, and it's one that is very much interwoven with the English efforts to sort of, quote-unquote, revise and update and improve the, the languages that we talked about last time. So when the English arrived in India and began to learn about the systems of law, systems of law that, of course, as overlords, it, they didn't want to replace so much but rather that they wish they could use for their own purposes, enforcing their own power. But what the English found in India was actually numerous systems of law at work simultaneously. And there are a lot of different reasons for this. A large part of it is, is sort of the result of being a, an intermingling of people with different le- legal traditions, as well as a complicated history of 
repeated conquering, wherein each new ruler would bring in their new systems of law. Now, we can date that, that latter impulse back, I would say, at least as far as Alexander, though it's probably far more likely to go back to the Achaemenid Persian Empire, uh, because who are we here in a, at a Freedom of Ideas to, to miss an opportunity to reference Cyrus the Great, right? Uh, in any event, uh, we, could, we can watch this process continue also forward in time through the expansion of Islam, through the, uh, certainly the bloody efforts of Tamerlane, who is, uh, I always see the same description go with his name, the Mongol Turkic conqueror in the 14th and 15th centuries. So Tamerlane, of course, did a much, many of his wars, many of his battles, uh, much of his conquering occurred on the Indian subcontinent. So India, when the English arrived, probably seemed a lot like what England probably looked like in the centuries following the collapse of Rome through to about 1066, when a degree of stability was created, in that case also by conquest from without. In his introduction to this essay on legal matters in the colonial state, Cohn said that the English regarded India as a, quote, functioning state in disarray. Meaning, this, as we've discussed, they regarded India as a state, as a member of the, that sort of group of modern nation states. Just like India, just like, excuse me, England, just like France, uh, just like many other European states, but just one that over time and because of this sort of complicated history, this, it, the structure of the state had grown confused and convoluted. So essentially it had been a state presumably operating the way the English would like it to operate at one point in time in its history. It had just kind of drifted off. So this is the almost the opposite dynamic that we see with the English encountering indigenous peoples, whom they imagine to have essentially no civil society, no maturity. In this case, this, this Indian state has aged to such an extent that now it's kind of grown confused and convoluted, but fundamentally the, the same exact uh, you know, solution applies to either problem. Bring in the English, bring in the imperialists, bring in their their high level of maturity and order and reason, uh, and, and they'll just kind of straighten everything out, and bring everybody right back up to that peak of modern, rational, uh, mature operation in the, in the, in the, on the world stage. And recall, of course, that at least India was granted this much respect in the eyes of the conquerors. As we saw previously, when the English and other colonizers encountered indigenous peoples, again, the folks who they regarded as never having developed something like a civil society, though of course we know that is not true, but speaking from the perspective of the English, they, they would have thought of these folks as never having made that kind of development at all. So in response to that, when the English believed there was no uh, civilization in place whatsoever, their treatment of the local populations was almost purely brutal. So whatever India suffered under the boot of imperialism, and, and certainly they suffered profoundly, not only suffered injustice, but su suffered quite a bit of violence as well. But whatever suffering they experienced, they were at least allowed to suffer it as a viable nation that, for the English, deserved at least that modicum of respect as such. In any event, the legal systems that developed around all of this was perhaps not so purely chaotic as we might think. Now, of course, as Americans, we begin to tap our fingers nervously whenever there's 
there's a, even an unresolved conflict between a, a state law and a federal law and a local law. We, we don't like any lack of clarity. We don't like any confusion in law whatsoever. If there's a conflict, we want it resolved. We want it resolved in a way that we feel will apply in absolutely every applicable situation. In the case of India, by contrast, there were often simultaneous systems of law working more or less in parallel. But the means by which these systems operate is actually kind of ingenious. Now, in contrast with the set of presumptions that most of us in the European tradition today, and certainly the English imperialists in their day, in contrast to the presumptions that all of us sort of hold about law, Cohn describes the Indian methodology in the implementation of law thusly. Now, and I should say, in all of these quotes, there will be people's names referenced. It, it's not actually all that important uh, to, to talk very much about who exactly these folks are. We'll just be able to tell by their names. They are certainly English imperialists, and they were all focused on understanding and ultimately revising and updating Indian law. So in any event, here's the quote from Cohn. Quote, law to Jones was a set of prescriptive norms, the breach of which would be cause for judicial redress. Such norms could best be sought, Colebrook pointed out, in collections called Sanhitas, which Hindus attributed to holy sages or sacred personages. These collections were extensive in number. Colebrook went on to explain that these ancient sages produced treatises on which subsequent Hindu lawyers, or pandits, commented. The whole, the original treatises, and the numerous commentaries on them formed the body of legal texts. In addition, a vast number of texts were subject to the same rules of interpretation and collected in Mimamasa, disquisitions on the proven authority of precepts, which Indians considered as a branch of philosophy and properly the logic of law. Mimamasa was and is the method used to reconcile conflicting texts of equal authority by applying various rules for the interpretation of words, phrases, and sentences. It was also a style of argumentation. Unquote. So we see in that short passage, right, a, a pretty drastic difference in approach to law between India and England. The goal of the English tradition of law is to determine with ever-increasing precision what exactly the law says, what exactly the law is, so as to be able to render a judgment that is as authoritative as possible and as universally applicable as possible. Now, we've said countless times that our legal system is a reflection of our rationality, one of the many rational systems of civil society that, in a sense, is, is a reflection of the rationality we possess and exercise as individuals. You know, we, we talked about this. This was in our earlier episodes. When we, we talked about, you know, when we're doing business in civil society, whether it's to do with law or government or commerce, all of those transactions are basically fundamentally rational, right? They just follow the, the basic precepts of small r reasoning. Well, Law is certainly no exception to that. Well, how much more like our own style of rationality could you ask a legal process to be? In the English view, there is a truth. There is one right answer to every question. We simply need to understand what is there 
what what's sort of there at the foundation, the most basic truths, and reason logically and correctly from those premises, and we will arrive at whatever this necessary truth happens to be. Now, if there's disagreement along the way, well, that's got to be because someone has made a mistake, right? If you and I are reading the same legal text and we come up with two very different views, that means one interpretation is right, one interpretation is wrong, and there should be some way at arriving at which person is right, which person is wrong. This is, if you know, as we see the, the reflection here, I hope we're seeing the kind of echoes of the same way we described our notion of rationality, the notion of rationality cultivated by folks like Locke, Mill, and others, all, all of whom, by the way, certainly Locke and, and a number of his contemporaries, folks who were actually involved in writing some of the foundational texts that would uh, slowly evolve over the, the years and the centuries and become cornerstone pieces of jurisprudence in England, in America, and elsewhere. In any event, as I'm going off on a tangent here, the Indian system, by contrast, when the English arrived, it, this sounds, dare I say it sounds far more interpretive, right? Far more flexible, far more willing to tolerate that, yeah, there are likely to be instances where there really is no such thing as a perfect absolute right. We simply have to do the best we can to arrive at a solution that best conforms to the spirit of justice. We might also find that an argument or an aspect of the law that makes perfect sense here in this situation makes much less sense there in that situation, but we might not necessarily be able to define as clearly what those differences would be. We just kind of, we have to wait until we encounter that situation and, and respond to it when we get there. And I will admit, for myself personally, the notion of being subject to a system of law that is nearly purposely inexact, that relies so much more on contextual interp interpretation than any kind of fixed fact, well, that sounds horrific to me. That sounds like, that does not sound like a legal system that I personally, in my background, want to be living under. But of course, that both is exactly the point, and it's also, it completely misses the point. The point is that there was and had been for some time a way of doing business in India. And that way of doing business was changed by the outside influence of the forces of imperialism. So the point being that it doesn't matter what I think, this is not my background, this is not my worldview, this is not, this is not the perspective that I bring to these questions. So yeah, maybe I do find it to be a, a strange system, but it's got nothing to do with anything. Of course, in a, in a normal progression, there wouldn't be that kind of in that kind of interference and that outside influence. So let's look at that and see, yet again, the mechanism by which minds are fundamentally changed through this process of imperialism. Again, in this case, given the influence that the English had on this particular legal system. Now to hear Cohn tell it, the purpose of the English in India, looking at this legal system and attempting to quote unquote improve it was to get, and this is just like with the, the language question we had last time, the, their purpose, their intention was to get at the exactitude of Indian law. Not, and, and I will say, Cohn makes this point very clearly, and I, as I said last time, I don't see any specific reason to assume that he's wrong about this or to assume that he's misinterpreting. The, the purpose was not to replace Indian law with English law, but rather to take what was 
confusing and inconsistent and potentially corrupt in Indian law and to clarify the way that law was written and organized such that its real spirit, its real intent could come through. So the goal of the English, as it was the English who ultimately chose to address these, uh, these issues that they identified and they were concerned with, the goal of the English in this scenario was to do almost exactly what they believed they were doing with language, meaning they believed they were taking what was confusing, taking what was seemingly distorted or out of order or unclear, and they were going to clarify it. They were going to systematize it. The goal, as far as Cohn tells it, was to clarify Indian law to the point that you could arrive at the actual real truth of it, that you could arrive at its actual essence. And of course, just like last time, we, we see the problem with this. It shouldn't be outsiders who are undertaking an activity like this. There certainly shouldn't be outsiders undertaking an activity like this at gunpoint or at sword point, right? But let's continue with Cohn. I think we've certainly made that point. Despite the fact that their goal was to clarify the real spirit of Indian law, the English very much did the opposite. So essentially, they replaced the legal values and the priorities of the Indian system with the legal values and priorities of the English system, even though this is the exact opposite of what they intended. So we can hear from Cohn on this as well. Quote, After the reform of the judicial system in 1864, which abolished the Hindu and Muslim law officers of the various courts of India, and after the establishment of provincial high courts, publication of authoritative decisions in English had completely transformed, quote, Hindu law into a form of English case law. Today, when one picks up a book on Hindu law, one is confronted with a forest of citations referring to previous judges' decisions as in all Anglo-Saxon-derived legal systems. And one is left to the skills of the judges and the lawyers based on their time-honored abilities to find precedent and to make law. What had started with Warren Hastings and Sir William Jones as a search for the ancient Indian constitution ended up with what they so much wanted to avoid, with English law as the law of India. Unquote. Now, what we see again, in sum, is analogous to the situation and the way the English attempted to, quote-unquote, clarify uh, the language, uh, language systems in India. To hear Cohn tell it again, the English intention in both cases was to get at the true essence of law, to get at the true essence of language, not just to run in and replace them with comparable English systems. And again, I, I'm inclined to take Cohn on his word, at his word on this. I don't have the authority to, to say that he's interpreting this the wrong way. You know, certainly he, has, uh, he had access to all kinds of materials on this, and certainly with an emphasis on what the English were telling themselves, what the English were telling each other. But the fundamental point in this, again, is that even as the English sought to get at the quote-unquote truth of law and language in India, what the English ended up doing was changing both law and language quite significantly. The English thought they were taking the features of Indian law and just systemizing it, clarifying it, putting it, putting it in order, while maintaining its essential nature as Indian rather than English. 
but it was the very notion of imposing this new order on both of those systems, on law and on language, that fundamentally changed both systems. Even if the Indians continued to use the written statutes of Indian law, the way that it was organized, the way that precedent was established, all those mechanisms that Cohn talked about in that quote, the way that decisions were made, all of that fundamentally became English, fundamentally became European. And we might say, we descendants of the European rational chauvinist tradition, that, that, that I'm using we in that sense once again, and I certainly am one of those, we might say, if we chose that the, the order imposed on those systems was a market improvement, that it created more clarity, it created more fairness in the, in the, the lives of people who lived under Indian law. Now, on this point, first of all, I'd simply have to plead ignorance. I certainly never lived under Indian legal systems in, in 1600. That's, that's not experience I have, so I cannot make any kind of comparative judgments. Of course, it sounds to me, based on Cohn's description, that the Indian legal system became one much more similar to the one that I understand, the one that I live under now, after, of course, the English had done their work with it. And thus, to me, had I lived through this process with roughly the same values that I have now, yeah, hey, maybe I would think that, I, that there was an improvement. Maybe I would have thought that this change was making things better. Now, again, I'd be very interested to hear direct accounts from the, the pandits, from the, uh, the authorities and others in the Indian system, the folks who could genuinely speak to the kind of changes that were being made here. Of course, in a sense, asking the question this way, worrying about what I would have thought about this change, that, again, as we've said, that completely misses the point. If the Indian legal system was to be massively overhauled, perhaps it ought to have been the Indians who were in charge of doing that overhauling. Now, we're all aware of the core injustice of imperialism, of course. I think we've made that point pretty clearly, that whatever's happening under imperial rule is happening under an externally imposed despotism. And thus, by definition, what happens under that despotism is not going to be part of the national character of the country being ruled. Even in instances like this, when, you know, with what are portrayed as the best intentions of the imperialists, when that created changes that were thought to be for the betterment of the country and its civil society, the basically false nature of imperial rule makes even acts of quote-unquote progress fundamentally suspect because they do not represent the will of the people in question. Now, as an aside, uh, and this, I, this is not really to our central point here, but I, it was an anecdote that I couldn't help uh, relating because it certainly um, gives you a clearer and more comprehensive sense of the, the uh, shall we say, the intentions of the English folks behind all these changes. Once the English had completed their work in revising the laws, whatever their misgivings about the outcomes, and as, again, Cohn says they were disappointed. They felt like they had tried to arrive at the genuine spirit of Indian law only to really do a bait and switch and just essentially replace Indian law with something that was fundamentally English law. But even, even in the midst of their disappointment, even as they were feeling so terribly about this process and whatever misgivings they happened to have about the outcome, the British took time to have a series of freezes, uh, and meaning the, you know, a series of uh, carved stone panels 
they had these panels carved depicting the English imperialists in Roman togas, mimicking the depiction of the Emperor Justinian. And for, for folks who don't recall, uh, Justinian was the latter Roman emperor, best known for taking Rome's centuries-old legal system and thoroughly revising it to get rid of numerous inaccuracies and contradictions and in instances of outdated legislation and areas where you needed you know, really intricate interpretation to figure out what was going on and thus made it open to corruption. And um, did, you know, Justinian is considered to be pr pretty heroic for having done all this. And it did a, a wonderful thing that allowed Rome to continue to thrive for a number of centuries afterward. In the process uh, of all this, by the way, Justinian also instituted a rule, and now we are way off the track, but there's you know, certain details I just can never get past wanting to pass along because they just fascinate me. In his process of doing all this, Justinian also instituted a rule that professions must be handed down the family line. He did this because it would help just kind of make sure that everybody was doing the right thing. You wouldn't have everybody suddenly making wine and nobody doing all the other stuff that needed to be done, right? It would help us kind of regulate and control the productivity of the people. Not good economic theory, mind you, but we're a little ways before Adam Smith and, and other folks like that. So in any event, Justinian institutes this rule, professions must be handed down the family line. That created what would in turn become the guild system in the Dark Ages and early medieval Europe, which in turn accounts in part both for why Europe was sunken in poverty for centuries and also created the circumstances under which Jews could not participate in the economy of Europe, which in turn set the stage for many of the elements of anti-Semitism in Europe that would persist up to and through the Second World War. So, you know, folks, history matters. History matters. It's all this stuff matters, you know. It all has consequences. In any event, we can see that even if we're not entirely pleased with the outcome of their work, uh, these English folks who are essentially having statues made of themselves, depicting themselves as Justinian, having just remade the laws of India, and I'll brief aside here just to point out, Justinian was actually Roman, so a little bit of a difference, slight difference, but, you know, otherwise, yeah, sure, these English guys, they are the new Justinians of, of India, and apparently whatever their misgivings, they were quite pleased with themselves. But to get back to our main, our main storyline here, our specific focus, if you want to be exact and look at what we've been trying to accomplish here, we've never really been focused purely on the justice or injustice of all of this, or even what you might or might not call quote-unquote progress. Though, of course, there are countless fascinating questions to be had there, and fundamentally, if you're talking about justice, the fact that, you know, we're talking about coercive situations in which violence is being used to change the direction of the development of civil society, that pretty much makes everything injustice. And then when you add on the, you know, the, the rape and the genocide and the pillaging and, and the historical, you know, mass murder and all those kinds of things, it means that the, the scales of injustice are stacked pretty high here. But in any event, when we look at the philosophical questions, our concern has always been about how this process of imperialism changed the minds of people across the world. Now, we saw that happening brutally and explicitly 
in relation to indigenous peoples in the Americas and elsewhere. Genocide and forced re-education will, of course, change profoundly the way a people lives in relation to the world and lives in relation to one another. The intentional murder of spiritual leaders, which I believe we've talked about on a couple occasions, uh, that, will, that will, of course, do very much the same. But what we see here in India, looking at Cone, is fundamentally a more subtle movement. No less influential, but certainly more subtle. The changes made in India, regardless of the intentions behind them, say, say for all I care, say the English had the absolute best of intentions in all of this. That doesn't really matter, fundamentally, at the end of the day. But the changes made in India were to institutions like law and government and commerce to faculties for public communication. But what we'll begin to trace in the next episode is how those changes to civil society invariably reflect back into the minds of the individuals that live within that civil society. Because as we've sort of begun to hint at a number of times, civil society and the worldview and the perspective and the minds of the individuals within that civil society, those are always in a process, individual minds and, and the overall civil society, always in this process of reciprocally defining one another. So given enough time, when you manipulate civil society, you manipulate individual minds. When you change civil society, you change the minds of the people living in it. So when we, when we see in India changes being made to law, changes being made to language, to commerce, to government, and all the rest, we see the beginnings of a slow process by which the minds of the people who experienced and constitute that civil society will also invariably be changed. Now, perhaps it will take generations to adjust to those changes made in civil society. Perhaps it will take a very long time. It doesn't happen overnight, but it certainly does happen. But again, with all of this, I'm kind of jumping ahead to what we're going to be talking about in the next episode. But with the rest of our time today, I'd like to talk about what, again, I consider some of the more ambitious claims that Cohn makes, but that I don't quite feel he sufficiently proves. But on the other hand, I do find them so fascinating and, and they resonate to such an extent that I thought with, you know, we'll say from here on out, let's do everything with a grain of salt. But nonetheless, I thought these were some fascinating ideas. And in a couple cases, as I'll detail while we're going through this, I think we can use other scholarship to provide proofs and examples of what Cohn is talking about kind of in the abstract here, but you know, we'll get to that. And without further ado, let's dive in. Cohn's basic premise is that the activities of imperialism in India and elsewhere were akin to a learning laboratory for the English, helping them to essentially figure out how to build up the institutions of civil society and government at home from the time spent building up imperial government around the world. So a lesson learned in India or in Ireland or in the Americas or wherever else they were in how to subdue a foreign people became an institution or a practice that could be transposed from use in imperialism to use in home rule, home government over one's own citizens. Cohn gives some examples of this, and another work, Empire Land, by Sathnam Sangera, which is a contemporary account of the history of imperialism in India and its effects on present-day Britain, cites examples as basic as 
policing, which was first used in Ireland and then brought home, and practices like surveillance of citizens by their government, first widely practiced by the English in India before becoming very much the global standard, certainly not just the English standard. But Cohn would have us see a more fundamental mechanism at work, an entire attitude towards rule that was first cultivated in the imperial territories and then brought back home to change the relationship between the government and the governed over the course of hundreds of years. The hinge of all this, for Cohn, is knowledge. Specifically, the knowledge that rulers are able to cultivate about the people they rule. Cohn traces a brief history of the English, in essence, struggling to learn about, the, about India and its people, their languages, their political practices, their literature, their religions, their society, everything in essence was at one point in time or another a focal point of the English will to learn as much as they possibly could about India. This is clearly reflected in Cohn's essays that we've been discussing thus far on languages and laws. In both cases, entire schools are established to better understand India and its people. Cohn introduces not only the various forms of knowledge cultivation, but how those forms of knowledge cultivation applied to India begin to reflect back to the home country in the way it is further codifying and clarifying its own rule over the British people. Quote, The process of state-building in Great Britain, seen as a cultural project, was closely linked with its emergence as an imperial power and India was its largest and most important colony. It is not just that the personnel who governed India were British, but the projects of state-building in both countries, documentation, legitimation, classification, and bounding, and the institutions therewith, often reflected theories, experiences, and practices worked out originally in India and then applied to Great Britain as well as vice versa. Many aspects of metropolitan documentation projects were first developed in India. For example, the Indian civil service provided some of the models for the development of the home services. A guiding assumption in my research on the British conquest of India in the 18th and 19th centuries has been that metropole and colony have to be seen in a unitary field of analysis. In India, the British entered a new world that they tried to comprehend using their old forms of knowing and thinking. There was a widespread agreement that this society, like others they were governing, could be known and represented as a series of facts. The form of these facts was taken to be self-evident, as was the idea that, quote, administrative power stemmed from the efficient use of these facts, unquote. Cohn goes on to talk about the specific methodologies, or the lenses, that the English used to understand Indian society, that therefore echoed back into the understanding of their own society and people. Though I might encourage us to briefly pause and consider this statement, that the British perceived that, for the purposes of rule, a society could be understood as fundamentally a series of facts. Now that's a very dry way to put it, right? But it's also compelling. Imagine running that idea past Henry VIII or Elizabeth I or, or even the, the comparatively more enlightened William and Mary in Locke's time. 
How much time do you think they spent imagining their people and their communities and their cities, imagining all these folks over whom they rule as being a sort of hyper-complex collection of facts that, while again, very complex, were at least theoretically entirely knowable? For classical models of reign, for the sovereign to quote-unquote know their people, for Elizabeth the Great, for example, to know her people, that was more of an emotional, instinctive sense that she, as the queen, was basically of the same stock, that she had the same impulses and priorities and, and instincts as her people, that she had a kind of empathetic connection to her people as the sovereign. It might on occasion mean learning some specific subject matter, like, you know, the agriculture in the Northlands, or defensive infrastructure along the coast, or the likely effect of a sea war on local fishing communities. But I truly doubt that Elizabeth ever sat back and contemplated that her people were essentially a construction of a variety of knowable facts, and that her power depended on the extent and thoroughness with which she gathered and understood those facts. Now, this kind of this kind of shift in, in mentality here, this reminds me of statistics in sports. For those of you who, who watch sports, you'll probably immediately know what I, I'm saying. Others, may, maybe not, and I apologize for that, but we'll be very brief. So if you go back and you talk to Babe Ruth as either a pitcher or a hitter, he may well have been able to give you all kinds of information on other pitchers and other batters that he was facing. But he wouldn't have boiled it down to a kind of precise figure like saying that the pitcher throws sliders 33.7% of the time on a batter's count or the likely exit velocity and launch angle of the ball after a hitter made contact. Like Elizabeth understood her people, Ruth would understand his opponents more instinctively, more narratively, less exactly, but also, and here I, I'll admit I risk being imprecise, but I mean, that's kind of some of the point. But in any event, the understanding, of course, that Babe Ruth and, and Elizabeth the Great would have, and how often do we hear those two just blithely sort of thrown together in an analogy, but, you know, never mind. That's, that's a less exact understanding, but perhaps it's also more comprehensive, right? More holistic, more natural. It, it sort of accepts the things you're getting to know as complete entities versus breaking them down into these you know, well, again, breaking them down into these discrete series of facts that you can almost take apart, like atomizing something and pulling it down to its most basic level. Now, where we, or at least where I, might ultimately disagree with the British view here is their belief that all of these facts, if properly studied, were knowable. So what am I saying here? That where I disagree, where I potentially disagree is this idea that if you try hard enough, you can get to know everything you really need to know or to understand about your own people, or even of foreign people. Now, I tend to operate on the assumption that we are basically icebergs, and I, I, I think I keep using this analogy in different ways, but it, it fundamentally applies. There are a series of facts about any person or group of people that are fairly readily knowable, depending on how much time and effort someone takes. And, but then there's also this much larger realm of impulses and instincts and experiences that weave together. And however much they influence us, they're likely not as easily knowable by other people. 
they maybe not, they maybe aren't even likely knowable by, by ourselves, right? As we're, as we're looking at ourselves and trying to understand the various facts that make up who we are, right? But all of this, certainly in the 18th and the 19th centuries, this was all the era before uh, Freud was writing, much less before there were any kind of general theories of the psychological subconscious, where those, before those were sort of standard pieces of our way of thinking about people, right? People were assumed to be basically, I would say, much less complex, at least uh, maybe it's more accurate to say far more completely knowable than we consider them to be now. And the way people tended to represent themselves, the, the things that people said about themselves, these were generally assumed to be far more accurate than we would necessarily assume them to be today. Now, this is not to say that the English in the 18th century were unaware of the concept of lying. I mean, they understood that a person might be deceptive, but they assumed that if you were not explicitly lying, or perhaps explicitly insane, then what you said about yourself was likely to be true. We tend not to simply assume that same thing today, especially when it comes to our own internal emotional states, our, our motivations or our goals, and certainly not our overall worldview. We accept that there is much about ourselves that not even we can fully know, much less that we could fully and accurately represent to someone else. In any event, with that odd little diversion behind us, though I, I do, of course, think it's fascinating to imagine how the science of rule, if you will, has changed with the knowledge that people do not fully understand themselves and that we are motivated by impulses that we ourselves are likely to fully understand. I mean, clearly that's had, that's had a significant impact, not only on our economy, but certainly on, on modes of government as well. But let's uh, leave that to the side for the, the time being. Cohn looks at a series of methodologies by which knowledge of the society and the people in India was understood and built up. Now, Cohn lists six major modalities, essentially six categories of types of facts, ways to, to gather facts about people. I, I'm not going to do a deep dive on most of them, but there are a couple that I really want to examine closely. Now, Cohn is essentially telling us that these are the buckets into which all of the facts that the English believed could or should be known about the Indian people, one way or the other, you could find all of those facts in one of these categories. Every important, knowable thing about a people should be able to fit into one or more of these categories. As Cohn puts it, quote, an investigative modality includes the definition of a body of information that is needed the procedures by which appropriate knowledge is gathered, its ordering and classification, and then how it is transformed into usable forms, such as published reports, statistical returns, histories, gazetteers, legal codes, and encyclopedias. Some of the investigative modalities of the colonial project are quite general, such as historiography and museology. Although they might include very specific practices, such as location and description of archaeological sites. Other modalities, such as the survey and census, were more highly defined and clearly related to administrative questions. Most investigative modalities were constructed in relation to institutions at administrative sites with fixed routines. Some were transformed into, quote, sciences, unquote, such as economics, ethnology, 
topical medicine, comparative law, or cartography, and their practitioners became professionals. Unquote. Now, the specific methodologies he divides this knowledge about societies and civilizations into, at least as far as it ought to be understood by that, that society's rulers, that those categories are as follows. And I'm just going to list the first few and then actually dive into the ones that really matter to us. To list the few that I'm not going to address at, at length, Cohn discusses the historiographic method, meaning, of course, regarding a country's history, the observational or travel model, which is about visiting places in the country, and the museological methodology, essentially attempting to understand India through its relics, its art, its, and its sacred objects, essentially its museum pieces. Although, I should say, uh, Cohn does point out that you know, I mean, points out, it doesn't go into great depth about this, but if we think about the, the difference between a religious uh, artifact, something that you might use, it, say a religious artifact that means something to you and your personal religious beliefs, think about the difference between that and a piece that you might find in a museum. Of course, one, they're two very different things. One is kind of existing in its own natural, if you will, intellectual, sociological environment, whereas the other's kind of been ripped out of that environment and put into this sterile place. So Cohn does go into sort of pointing out how much of that museological methodology actually essentially uh, required the process of destroying pieces that were pieces of living culture to turn them into museum pieces. But again, that's a, a little side road he goes down that, that we will not follow him all the way on. Now, the first modality that Cohn lists that I, I want to dive into with greater length here is the survey modality. Now, in India, this started quite simply with mapping, because, of course, you, this is a brand new place, so we want to get to know it. But it quickly extended to, and here I'm quoting quote, Cohen again, quote, any systematic and official investigation of the natural and social features of the Indian Empire, unquote. Which, of course, that's rather extensive, right? In addition to creating precise maps by which any location in India could quickly be determined, this included everything from zoology to botany, geology, sociology, economics. In short, it was everything to do with the lay of the land down to the finest detail the English could possibly find and incorporate. Now the next, very much related to that methodology, is the enumerative methodology, meaning the numbers and the statistics that applied to India. Now this included uh, population, the creation of a census, but it, it extended outward to everything to do with economics, and certainly that's of vast importance uh, to the, the business, that quote-unquote business that was at the heart of England's motivation to be an imperial power in India in the first place. Now, Cohn makes an interesting observation on the census and its impact on India. We've, of course, all heard of the caste system when, when applied to India, right? The rigid social stratification of class in India. Well, let's listen to Cohn for a moment on this particular point. Quote, The published census reports not only summarize the statistical information thus compiled, but also included extensive narratives about the caste system, the regions of India, fertility and morbidity, domestic organization, and the economic structure of India. The census represents a model of the Victorian encyclopedic quest for total knowledge. It is my hypothesis 
that what was entailed in the construction of the census operations was the creation of social categories by which India was ordered for administrative purposes. The British assumed that the census reflected the basic sociological facts of India. This it did, but through the enumerative methodology, the project also identified social, cultural, and linguistic differences among the people of India. The panoptical view, and here just to break with the quote for a second, here we can see that Cohn has been diligently reading his Foucault, referencing the panopticon, right? That's, that's pretty good. But anyways, back to the quote. The panoptical view the British were constructing led to the reification of India as a polity in which conflict, from the point of view of the rulers, could only be controlled by the strong hand of the British. Now, this is one of the points that I think Cohn does not prove as well as he should have, at least not in the essays in this volume. But let's take a moment to, first of all, unpack this a bit, and then to think about the effects of this. So just to break down a little bit more clearly what, what Cohn is saying, the British arrive in a country with a strict caste system, tiers of social status. And I, I should say, as we go into this, Cohn readily admits that system was, of course, very real, very much predated the arrival of the British in India. And yet, what must have been the effect of seeing it codified so starkly, of having the official identity of every person in India associated with one of these castes, to have the part of the government's role now be both to systematize that caste system and in so doing to reify that caste system in the way that they accounted for their population. No matter how ingrained this system was prior to the English census, it is impossible that the introduction of the census did not serve to further entrench this way of thinking and to reinforce the way Indians identified one another and themselves. Now, I think we often un underestimate this, and here to some extent, I'm, I, I, again, I, I don't feel like Cohn has done enough to prove this point, but I, I kind of just saying why it resonates with me uh, so much. So, to kind of help Cone out with this just a little bit as if he needs my help, I'd say, let, let's just thinking this through a bit here. Let's think about the fact that the government has power. And again, I think we often underestimate this, particularly we in America, but government has significant power even in these kind of suggestive realms. The word of leaders has power. And here we're taking a commonly accepted system of caste and social classification and then giving it the indelible stamp of official power and authority. Now, this may be yet another instance in which, in which the English would say they were only trying to make official what was already real, to codify the reality of Indian life. And that may well have been their intention, but I can't help but agree with Cohn's view here that the codifying of the caste system in this way simply must have also concretized, if you will, made much more solid, made, in a certain sense, made more real that caste system and further entrenched it into Indian life and the way people regarded one another. Certainly, at the very least, it gave folks at the top of the caste pyramid kind of a, a official cover, official sanction in ensuring that this model persisted for as long and as, and as thoroughly as it possibly could and its ramifications were absolutely felt throughout society. It further, when we think about this, just kind of following this line of reasoning, it further 
puts the English on the side of the people who are most empowered by this system. It forces the English to, to essentially give the stamp of power to those folks because their entire effort is to exercise power through the current power structure. So what better path for them to take to accomplish that than to further empower the people at the top of the caste system who, of course, are traditionally most able to sway the rest of the people in India. But again, Cohn does not go as deeply into that as I'd love him to. I'd love to see much more research on that, but just a fascinating point that I kind of wanted to draw to our attention. Now, the last methodology that Cohn discusses is the surveillance methodology, meaning the kind of knowledge you cull from a people in a place when you observe it, but are not part of it. Now, if that sounds familiar, there's, there's a good reason for that, but we'll get to that in a second. Let's hear from Cohn. Quote, The British appear in the 19th century to have felt most comfortable surveying India from above and at a distance. From a horse, from an elephant, a boat, a carriage, or a train. They were uncomfortable in the narrow confines of the city street, a bazaar, a mela, anywhere there were they were surrounded by their Indian subjects, unquote. Now, for our purposes, we can first recognize the significance of, of what we can call here the will toward objectivity. Now, remember, that hallmark feature of the European mode of rationality, this constant insist insistence toward objectivity, toward disconnection. So we see that here, Yet again, in the same way that we should be distanced from a science experiment, in the same way we need to be objective and, and sort of emotionally detached from a philosophical problem, here again we see the belief embodied in this way of thinking that suggests that the best way to understand and rule the people of India is at a distance, disconnected from them, uninfluenced by them, inaccessible to the people they themselves hoped to understand this. Remember, this is an explicit goal. We're trying to understand the Indian people. To do that, we will keep ourselves at a pretty safe remove to make sure that we're doing it as well as we can. That the way to gain the best possible knowledge is not through interaction or relation, but to garner knowledge without involving the selfhood of the gatherer whatsoever, and as a consequence, of course, without allowing in the individual selfhood of any of the people that you're ostensibly gathering information on. Now, just as the, like we say, just as the English might have studied science from a sort of chilly, distant peak of objectivity, so too are they studying their Indian subjects. Now, of course, what begins on horseback is perfected over the centuries and through the use of technology as a capacity to monitor a citizen or citizens without them ever knowing you were doing so. Now, I, I'm, I, you know, I hope you know, I'm not, I'm not going to push deep state rumors, but can you possibly argue that the relationship between ruler and ruled has not changed significantly now that it's possible to account for you know, if you really try, most every action, most every interaction, most every conversation of any given citizen without their ever being aware that that information was gathered. That you can gather all of this information without ever even meeting a person. But let's pan back from that for a moment and think about the broader effects 
on what it means to be a citizen when your government views you through these particular lenses. And this is where, you know, I said this is a lot of it, what fascinates me about Cohen's points here is how all of this is echoing back to the home country. So we're no longer talking about the English in India. We're talking about what the English learned in India and then took back to the home country to essentially create uh, new and better ways to rule their own people. And at that point, of course, we have to stop thinking that this is purely about India. This is about modern governance. This is about techniques of modern governance learned in the laboratory of, of imperialism, essentially. So that's so we've very significantly panned back here. And of course, that's another area where I don't feel Cone really connects all the dots. And yet, we certainly can see from what he's talking about here echoes and reflections of, of all of this very much in, our, in the modern state of governance, if you will. So for the this sake of simplicity here, let's focus mainly on three of the six quote-unquote methodologies that, uh, that Cohn is talking about. So we'll look at the survey, the enumerative, um, and of course the survey and enumerative methodologies for gathering data. Those are fairly similar, certainly. You might even say survey falls under enumerative, but he divides them in two, and that's fine. And then the third, of course, the surveillance modality of knowledge gathering when it comes to gathering knowledge about, about your own citizens. Now, anyone who has a realistic understanding of modern government understands the importance of something like statistics in the way that government is going to operate. To use a very simple example, if the United States federal government is truly incapable, if we just took this information away from them and they couldn't possibly tell how many people there were in Montana versus how many people there were in New York or Texas or Colorado, then, of course, the function of modern government would simply become impossible, at least as we understand it. If you're going to have a Department of Agriculture or a Department of Transportation or many other departments, you're going to need precise survey data. Without it, you might be waiting for that next crop of lemons out of North Dakota or, you know, cranberries from those bogs in eastern Wyoming. Uh, you, you set about maybe you're going to go try and build a road, but maybe you end up building that road without, you know, really precisely knowing how long it has to be or, or where it should allow for ingress and egress or where it has to likely account for the most traffic versus the least traffic. And, and here's one that maybe is a bit more controversial, but I think most of us have at least some degree of hope that government should try to know about a hugely destructive criminal event before it happens and that they should further try to use that information to prevent it rather than waiting until after it happens in the hopes of merely punishing the perpetrator. Now, again, that's, of course, far more controversial and rightly so. But how many folks listening to this right now? And I, I think we can, you know, in the age of Twitter and, in, you know, sort of you know, having these broad kind of arguments, maybe we can say something like, oh, we shouldn't be collecting this kind of information, what have you. How many folks listening to this right now are ready to live under a government that has no capacity to surveil its own citizens whatsoever under any circumstances? So one way or the other, with some exceptions here and there, and we probably all have, we can quibble about the details all day long, but we accept all of these as more or less normal functions of government. And yet, what is the impact on the way a government looks at a population 
the way a population views itself and its government, when the bulk of their understanding of one another is in fact statistical. What does it say about me and about my relationship with my government that I'm always most important when I'm reduced to a number? Uh, whether it's a, a population count or a vote count or a member of a tax base and a statistically probable user of certain public services. What does it mean? And, and bear with me here. You know, I, I try not to do all these like, well, so what about this kind of questions and, and just leave them all hanging there. But that's kind of what we're going to do today. So, you know, strap yourselves in. But um, what does it mean to my rational status at a, as a citizen of a country? if that is turned into a purely statistical matter. Now, we recall back when we were first talking about the nature of civil society and our interactions with it, and within it, as we were talking about all this as being basically rational. We said that the extent to which we had a certain kind of power and currency within a society was the extent to which we are regarded as rational within that society. Being viewed as rational is how I have my views taken seriously, how I have them taken into account. Being rational is how I exercise a degree of control in my interactions with law enforcement and the judiciary and education and commerce and pretty much every aspect of actual lived governance and civil society. So if we think about our idea of rational societies, in light of the development that we see Cone tracing here, we're pretty quickly confronted by a conundrum. On the one hand, most of us would agree that a government employing statistics and, and measurement, you know, even surveillance to some extent, we'd agree that um, you know, those kinds of functions and the way a government operates is obviously that's going to make government itself more rational. Again, to use a silly example, if you heard that your government was making choices about the way it spent its money without any statistical information on population and needs and service utilization and all the rest. So if your government decided to build a superhighway through a sparsely populated part of the country where people seldom even travel through or to, well, you're surely not going to say that that was a, a good rational move. You would say that that's a far less rational way to operate a government. Okay, but what about our rationality? Our rationality as citizens, my individual rationality as a citizen. Isn't it true, in a sense, that the extent to which I am reduced to a predictable statistic is also the extent to which my individual rational perspective becomes, you know, somewhat superfluous, right? Now, a statistic has no agency. It has no motivations. It has no personhood, obviously. It has predictability within a margin of error. Now, fans of our first season may recall the philosophical tension between freedom and determinism, particularly on an individual sort of abstract level. Now, of course, when we're talking about that, and again, we're talking about the context of individual determinism, the idea that I as an individual might not be making free choices at all, but rather that I'm kind of living out the equation of my biology or my psychology or even physics or, or, or what have you. Now, of course, this is not exactly that, but in a way, it's perhaps even more tangible. So what does it mean if my behaviors are correctly predicted, are correctly predictable within a margin of error by a government or by a corporation or by really whoever else? What does that say about my personal agency? 
my actual capacity to implement my freedom? What does it mean when much of governance is predicated on predicting my needs, my behaviors, my tolerances, and so on and so on and so on? Predicting these things within a margin of error, or at least to a reasonable extent, is an important aspect of what government is. It's an important aspect of what government does and, most of us would agree, should do. But what does it mean to us as citizens to be managed as data sets, right? Now, again, I'm only cr comfortable criticizing this up to a certain point, and I'm not even really criticizing. Like I said, this is one of those things that I, uh, a habit in philosophy that I'm not particularly fond of most of the time to just say, hey, man, but, you know, like, what about, you know, you know what about waves, man? What about that? And I, I don't like doing that. That's not what I hope to be doing here. But to a, to a certain extent, I am, because, frankly, I don't. Uh, want to take the time and, and, and dig into the scholarship to try and answer a question like, what does it mean to reduce a citizenry to a, to a data set? I kind of want us all to just ruminate on that and maybe come to our own conclusions. But in any event, back to our story here. The modern state cannot possibly incorporate the holistic rational perspective of every citizen on every issue, right? So, you know, there's a reason that we vote with a check mark not with a short narrative essay, right? Now, arguably, in fact, you could say that my representation as a statistic at least gives me that much power. It means that at the very least, excuse the pun, but at the very least, I count. I'm not being wholly ignored. And that's surely a lot better than many other groups have, have been treated throughout history. Groups of people who were not counted at all, who, or who were literally assigned a percentage value of full citizenship. It's certainly better than the quote-unquote representation that Elizabeth's subjects got back in the day when fundamentally their representation was either to stage an insurrection or it was just to hope that as Elizabeth was sitting back and opining on how well she understood her people and how she was one with their souls that hopefully she was getting it a little bit right and would do something that would a little bit address their needs in the world, right? But the extent to which I am factored into government decision-making as a statistic is both undeniably the best solution that we have found for a number of problems in public policy and planning, and it is also a distinctly dehumanizing aspect of modern government. Where the most idealistic forms of dem democratic government once struggled to account for the voice of every citizen, or at least claim to do so in theory, often by narrowing the sphere of those who could be called citizens in the first place. Pretty familiar with that trick in history, right? Now, government, you know, it accounts for the fact, for the lives, for the, at least the occupancy of most every citizen, if only on an Excel spreadsheet. Now, the difference is striking, and I believe it is strikingly influential as well. The extent to which government itself has become more rational is also the extent to which our own individual rational perspective becomes, again, like I said before, becomes in a sense superfluous. But, as I say, these are very large questions which, to, to some extent, we do a disservice by asking rhetorically, as we have been doing here today. As we said, these are some of Cohn's less well-proven claims, so I don't think we want to build too much on the foundation of them moving forward, and yet they seem to me quite compelling to consider, certainly in the context of all the rest of this. Now, having spoken about how imperialism changed minds through both abject brutality 
and seemingly more subtle and perhaps even misguidedly quote-unquote well-intentioned means in the manipulation of language and law in India, next week we're going to return to some of our core themes. We're going to talk more generally, uh, more somewhat more abstractly actually, about how this process of changing minds fits into the two sort of larger philosophical themes. Specifically, we're going to dive more intently into the mutually defining relationship between civil society and individual mind, which of course we've been talking about sort of pecking around the surface at for the last few episodes here. But before we close out today, uh, uh, one question for folks to contemplate, and please let me know your thoughts on this if, if you would. I feel like there's a lot more to say about the impact of the this importance of statistics, Cohn's quote-unquote enumerative method methodology, the survey methodologies in both the operation of modern government and its impact on the people. Now, I'll also say that I feel like my concern over it might get you worrying that I have my tinfoil hat wrapped a little too tightly while I was putting this episode together, but, you know, so be it. That's the, the risk of, of putting some of these ideas out in the world, I suppose. So I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Do, do you think this is a somewhat valid concern, even if we don't seek, we're certainly not going to seek to eliminate statistics in government altogether, um, because it's not, uh, certainly, I don't think it's even possible, but I also don't think it's a good idea at all. But do you think it's something into which we ought to be putting more thought? To me, it feels like something that would concern Foucault, for example, probably uh, also concern Mar uh, Marcuse, who uh, went, as I sort of look at the way he considers some of these ideas, that they seem to echo with concerns about this kind of stuff. And if it is worth contemplating, what strikes you about it? What concerns you? Where do you think we should be applying, applying our energy trying to better understand all of this? And of course, I guess a sub-question to all of this, this, what fascinates me in this particularly, and I don't know if Cohn really intended this, because this is, of course, kind of our little hobby horse that we've been working on here. But if we say that this European rational chauvinist worldview was kind of modeled by a number of the priorities of this European style of reasoning, just like we said with ob objectivity, right? That objectivity was so important to the English in India so important that they ended up treating a people essentially like a science experiment, trying to distance themselves, trying to gain that objectivity. Well, I see a similar dynamic here, right? This, this idea that statistics are, yes, it, it is a rational use of information to determine how we should use a government, and yet it, it is very much reflective of this kind of European system of priorities. It's very reflective of this particular European style of rationality. And I, I guess the, the question, as we've kind of been asking it at a couple different points, how different could it be? How differently we, could we be using this kind of information? How differently could we be gathering this kind of information? Anyway, more and more and more rhetorical questions, which I've told you seven times, I'm not particularly fond of other people who do that. So apparently I should stop, but would love to hear from you as always. Of course, that is at a freedom of ideas on Twitter, that is words at a freedom of ideas to send me an email, and it is a freedom of ideas.com to, uh, to check out the website, find all of this information and even more. But until then, thank you for tuning in. I'll talk with you next time. I'm looking forward to it.